Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being with us here this morning. And a huge welcome to many of you visiting us for the first time because of Superhero Sunday. But also, we need to uh, do a big welcome. I don't know if you saw these buses pull up today. No, that is not our new bus system to the shuttle. Uh, someone said I should say that. I said, yeah, I'd get emails later. But we've got a whole youth group, I believe, from the Met here today. So if you want to wave at us so we know who you are. There they are. Let's welcome them right here. Welcome. I'm sure you're all awake after being at Acquire the Fire for the last 48 hours. How are you leaders doing today? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you've got a Bible, please t- turn to the book of James. We're in this series called A Normal Christian Life. What, what is this Christian life supposed to look like? And Jesus' uh, half-brother, James, writes this incredible small book sent to many churches 2,000 years ago to sort of outline that experience. Now, I, I was reflecting this week. As we get involved in life, uh, the boringness of life, the routine of life, the, the ruts of life, or the opposite, the insanity of life, the craziness of life. Do you notice that those two things never happen at the same time? Life is either boring or crazy, but not a lot of the in-between. When we're in those places of normalcy or insanity, sometimes we get our, our eyes off what matters. Eternity no longer seems forefront to us. We forget there's another chapter coming. And so sometimes I think we need to be jarred, we need to be uh, stopped, we need an evaluation, a divine intervention to get our eyes looking again to those things that actually matter. I was driving home this week and uh, there's a stretch of road towards my house where there's really no uh, houses on each side. And I was listening to the radio, I was thinking about what was going on at work, and I was going, and suddenly, this huge thing started blinking at me, and I was jarred. What it was is that our community has put up uh, a thing that tells you if you're going too fast. Have you seen these? And so, uh, I, by the way, I was only four kilometers over. That is the truth. No, it's true. It's true. And so it started blinking at me. You're going too fast. You're going too fast. And what did I instinctually do? I slowed down. It's like when a cop or a police officer drives behind you. Do you know what I'm talking about? You instinctively slow down, even if you're not speeding. Now, for you who speed up, totally different issue, different sermon. But for, for most of us who are normal, we slow down. I've always wondered, there's a lot of police officers here. Like, God bless you guys and ladies. A question, though, do you get frustrated because people just slow down around you all the time? I've always wondered that. With no lights, just, oh, oh, oh. Anyway, you can email me later. I, I, I really wonder that. But we, we slow down. And so I've been observing all week long since my experience about others. And person after person after person driving into my neighborhood suddenly is jarred by this thing that starts flashing, telling them what they're doing, when they're doing it, how they're doing it. It is a truth meter. This is truth. This is what's happened. This is what you need to do. Well, today's message is exactly that. For us who are sitting here today, for the many of us watching and listening online this morning, this is exactly what this message is going to do this morning. As I was doing my prep this week, I came across a helpful summary of today's passage, which I think sets the context, the environment for James chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be today. As one person wrote, as I mentioned in chapter 1, 
Don't forget, James' primary audience, well, it was Jewish. Those Jews who had identified themselves with the Christian faith, many of them, don't forget, doubtless, at considerable cost, family and friends, even loss of jobs, and some eventually loss of life. Some Jews had come from the extreme legalistic Judaism and now have become the opposite extreme. They replace a works righteousness system, one that required you to prove yourself to God, to another thing where now they didn't do anything at all. Those Jews had long since realized they could not possibly keep all the commands of God or even meet his standards of righteousness. The law was a hopeless, a demanding burden they could never carry. And over the previous centuries, rabbis had now added more burdens through the oral law and traditions. Consequently, when, when they started hearing that the gospel of salvation, meeting God, was through grace alone and faith alone, many Jews were immediately attracted to this. Some, of course, assumed then that this movement gave Gave them everything, listen, but demanded nothing of them. Such people would make professions. Yeah, I follow Jesus the Messiah, but with the mistaken notion that since works aren't effective to get salvation, they're not now necessary for anything. And so at this moment, a new battle emerges within the fledgling church. Extremes always get us in trouble today, and it was the same 2,000 years ago. So James, don't forget, the half-brother of Jesus, the one that resisted Jesus, the one who did not believe in Jesus, who later became that vibrant follower of Jesus, and we're told later would actually be killed for his faith. Now at this moment, once again, speaks with authority, uh, with passion, with directness to us, seeing if we really want to follow Jesus for the first time and the many of us who claim to follow Jesus already. Here now at this critical moment, James flushes out. He calls, he pleads for one thing. He cries out, oh, to see a church that is full of pure religion. Think back to his words only a few weeks ago. James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. One must be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of God's word. One must move beyond verbal confession to a life that reflects the great change and relationship that is supposedly been given. And so James starts by confronting empty confessions of many that were attending church, by the way, on a very regular basis. James 2.14 reads like this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith, he asks, save them? So, here's the question, everyone. Is faith all we need? Can, can I have good theology only and will that save us? Can we split faith and works or is there like an inseparable union, a marriage between them? Sure, sure, John. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I grew up in the church. I, I know what the Bible says. My family's Christian, so I'm Christian, right? Or, yeah, my ethnic background, everyone sort of from that flavor would call themselves a Christian, so... I think I would use the title Christian. Or Sure, Jesus is a great guy. Actually, probably out of all the religions, he's the coolest guy, and he tells me to like everyone, so I'll use the title Christian. I don't know what else I'd use. James cries out again, Stop. Stop. Hear the word of God. Stop and ask the question that you need to ask. Can that faith, what you think in your own heart right now, Will that really, truly save you now and in eternity? Uh, by the way, John, he talks about works. 
That's thrown around a lot in church. What in the world is a work anyway? Well, works are simple, everyone. Works is anything done in obedience to God or to, in the service of God. Anything in the obedience to God or the service of God. And so now, at this moment, for all of us, many unexpected, the lights are now flashing here to stop, to really observe. James is about to say that faith that is devoid of works will not save no matter how strong, how vocal, how deeply held, how cherished that faith may be. James now gives a very practical example of faith connected to works of faith. Verse 15, he says, you know, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. What if you actually met a fellow Christian that was naked or doesn't have enough food to live? Or what if you just meet a fellow Christian and they don't have the basic necessities of life? What are we called to do, James says? What, are, what, what should we do? James gives us the very, ready, wrong, but commonly expressed answer through our attitudes and deeds. Imagine if someone walked by that Christian and said to them these words, Well, go. <laughs> I, I wish you well. Keep warm and well-fed. I'm off to the Christian bookstore. Can you imagine that? You know what I wish you well means? It means God give you peace. And by the way, this is huge. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. And the prayer is that God would give a blessing on every dimension of a person's life. Physical, emotional, mental, sexual, spiritual. So it goes way beyond good luck to you. So the person says, well, God help you. And then note the hypocrisy. Uh, Keep warm now and and well fed, though you don't have anything. I found out this week that the word fed actually is the word gluttony. The person is actually saying, have fun while you're committing gluttony. It actually comes from cows that chew their cud and they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat until they get sick and they throw it up and they eat it again. That's what it's saying here. So blessing is basically saying, have fun, hope things work out. So there's a person among us in our Christian community, real pain, real suffering, and the pious God-loving Christian says, so God bless you, God take care of you, hope things work out for you, Uh, just have more faith and just trust in God, enjoy God's great life for you, and then walks away. Can you imagine the pain, the anger, the, the question? This is Christian community? This is the hands and feet of Jesus, the local church, the hope of the world? I mean, we all know this. You don't have to have any formal education We all know that words, even well-meaning words without action, are useless. Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well-fed. But then does nothing about the physical needs. James asked the question, what good is it? The scripture is clear about the call to act, to feed, to clothe, to love. Not only those suffering among us, I remind you, but those that don't even care about Jesus or the church. What's the foundational idea? Acts 2.45, selling possessions and goods they gave to any person who had need. What did Jesus say about judgment? Matthew 25, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came and you visited me. Even Luke chapter 10, someone asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells that great parable of the Good Samaritan. And he reminds us that we are called to care for those in our community and those not. Let me just say as a side note, why do you think we are so compelled as a church to launch the City of Hope? Why why do you even think we launched the Common to begin to meet these very needs? 
I find many of us in a middle-class church want to help, but don't know where to help or how to help. So just a side note, please, many more need to sign up in the common to get involved so we can express our needs to each other and also meet those needs. It's at the heart of what we're trying to do here, to be an authentic church. Well, back to the text. The person obviously described above is not absorbed in the central teachings of Jesus, let alone the prophets of the Old Testament. James says these words in verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied, accompanied by action, it's one thing. Dead. One wrote words and sermons, just like this one. Prayers and confessions of faith, wise advice, encouragement, exhortation are indispensable to true biblical Christianity. But then James reminds us, people need to see actions that correspond to the litany of words in church. It's not faith and works, by the way, that James is after. Listen closely. He is talking about living faith and dead faith. Now, knowing there are honest questions starting to emerge, those people hearing this probably for the first time or hearing it read again, James now in his writing imagines an opponent like a boxing max, uh, giving him back objections. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith, fine, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I do. James, back off. Listen, don't you get this? I have faith, and fine, that's my spiritual gift. Your spiritual gifts are about, you know, helping people or whatever. Just breathe. James says, no. There is no option here. Only where words is, are seen is genuine, saving faith present. Only where words are seen is genuine, saving faith present. James, now in a role again, challenges the shallow conviction held by so many that would say by actions, well, I know the truth, but I don't really have to embrace the whole thing, right? He says in verse 19, listen, you believe that there's one God? Uh, good. Even the demons believe that, he reminds them, and they shudder. Don't miss this. Belief in one God is at the heartbeat of Orthodox Judaism. It is the one thing that defined them for generations and decades and centuries. It's correct belief. Jews twice a day in Jesus' time actually prayed out of Deuteronomy 6.4, O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. This confession, I remind you, is central to us as Christians as well. Christians have always asserted the oneness of God in the face of the world that claims that there are many gods and these gods should also be involved in and be worshipped. Well done, James says to these Jesus-following Jews, and he means it. I'm so glad you have truth. I'm so glad that you're orthodox in your thinking, but right doctrine does not equate salvation. One said, as important as correct doctrine is, no one, listen, no one in the early church considered it sufficient for salvation. Genuine faith must go beyond the intellect into the will. It must affect our attitudes, our actions, and our beliefs. It is a good thing, they write, to possess an accurate theology. I would say it's a most needed thing, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses us. The demonic, James reminds us, the kingdom of darkness, Lucifer and all those angels that rebelled against God and, and assaulted him before time was time, they're more orthodox than many sitting here this morning. They know more truth than we all do, and they acknowledge it. 
All demons, think about it, they're monotheists. They know there's only one God. They invented half of the new ones, or they are half of the new ones. They only believe in truth. Every demon knows to the core of their being the truth we confess is true. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. As a Christian, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried on the third day, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where Jesus will come back to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in you, Holy Spirit. I believe in your holy Catholic Church, the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. They hate that truth. They resist that truth. But they know that truth. Yet, unlike us, James reminds us, they shudder. The truth itself awakens a fear and terror and causes them to tremble and to quake and to shake for it is the name of that very God that it's used to cast them out and it is that name of God that they know they will face and will judge them forever. But do you catch it? The one that hates us, the one whose very job description and very DNA is our destruction, they're even moved to action, James says. Belief is wedded to action. So if they are even moved in a bizarre way, how can we say as Christians we have real faith and we're not moved at all? You're not a demon, by the way. You're a human being made in the image of the one you supposedly confess. He turns again back to holy history. He goes to the father of the Jewish faith, the father of the Christian movement, which of course is only fulfilled Judaism. He goes back to Abraham. He says in verse 20, read it with me, you foolish person. You empty, poor, deceived, wrong-thinking, wrong-standing person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? A sterile, workless, idle, inactive, uh, ineffective, defective, untilled, fallow, and unproductive? Was not our ancestor Abraham, verse 21, considered one thing, righteous, justified, for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Let that sit for a second. Because this should be confusing a lot of you right now. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in the whole Bible. Thinking caps on. Ready? The phrase considered righteous is the word justified, which means to be declared right before God, to be in right relationship with God. So, John, uh, what's going on? Is James now teaching us that I have to have faith in Jesus, and then I have to be a really good, diligent Christian, do works, and then I become a Christian? But You've always taught us it's by faith alone, and Jesus alone, by God's grace and work on our behalf. And, and I, I, I'm telling you, I'm sure Paul wrote something different. Doesn't Ephesians 2.8 says it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a work so no one can boast. And I'm sure in Romans 4.2, Paul says something about Abraham in verse 2 where he says, In fact, Abraham, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, John, is James saying faith plus works, and Paul is just saying faith? Are they contradicting each other? Are, are there two movements of Christianity? No. 
The word justified in Greek has two emphases. Listen closely, it's important for today. Paul uses one, and, and actually James uses another. One, the one Paul uses, is active. Everyone ready? It's to be declared right, to be acquitted from a true charge. It has a legal sense, like a judge saying, you are pardoned. Uh, Jesus' perfect life, his death, uh, his work on the cross, his resurrection, is what theologians say, imputed put on to us. It covers us. His work is credited righteous to us. And then we are justified. We're in right standing. All his work, all his love, all of what God has done for us is on his side. All we must do is say yes. And it's imputed. The other that James uses is passive. And this is what it means to be in right relationship already. Works demonstrate righteousness. One is proved to be righteous through works. So this is how you could translate verse 23 from the Greek. Wasn't Abraham proved, 22, sorry. Wasn't Abraham proved righteous as demonstrated by his deeds or shown to be righteous on the basis of his deeds? Another wrote it this way. Was not our father Abraham shown to be right by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, this is important where we're going to go today and what God's going to speak to us. James, one wrote, is concerned with a living faith that is demonstrated through deeds. Paul is concerned with a gift of faith that does not come through good works. They are dealing with two different problems in the church in two different communities, so the answer looks different. Paul in Romans is asking the question, how do you become a Christian? James is saying, is there evidence that the relationship exists already and salvation has already occurred or has it not? And then what does James do? Look at verse 23. He quotes the exact same verse that Paul did. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And I love this. And he was called God's friend. We see the process of faith. Abraham believed God, was justified, and made right. His works only point to the already existing relationship. And then he was called, don't miss this, God's friend. What dignity. What honor, what joy that God would call any of us struggling, sinful, rebellious people his friend. It's that story, right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that he'd save a wretch like me. Unlike so many other world religions and faiths and ideas, the great beautiful truth is we are called God's friend not because of what we do, but because he loved us first. And only then does verse 24 makes sense. And James is being very direct to many of us today. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. He directly says, if there is no evidence, then you have a huge question mark above your faith. Let me say it one more time. Here's just a little chart here. Paul is dealing with something. Paul is dealing with works of the law don't lead to faith. James's concern is faith expresses itself in works of faith. Well, Yami, he ends like this in verse 25. In the same way, he goes back to holy history, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? He's quoting, by the way, Joshua 2. He says, look, this woman who was a prostitute trusted in God, hid the spies, and she did three things. She had trust in God, she demonstrated that trust, 
and she was hospitable, the very thing that's being threatened in the Christian community, as James is writing. But a person reminded me this week, and I think we at this point need to be reminded again, Rahab was not saved because she was a good woman. Abraham was not saved because he was a good man. If you read their histories, it's full of sin just like us. They were saved because they put their trust in the only one who could save. And the evidence that it was real was their lives changed. And think about it. Rahab not only becomes a great woman of faith expressed in Hebrews, she actually joins the line of Jesus the Messiah. James comes from her background. James ends like this. Listen to these very difficult but needed words. Verse 26, as the body is without spirit, is dead, so faith without deeds, it's just dead. So what is the Lord saying to us today? For all of us gathering and all of us watching or listening somewhere else today. Well, let me bring it home for you. I think the very important question being asked for some of you is, are you even a Christian Is there any evidence that you are really a follower of Jesus? I'm not talking about losing salvation, by the way. Once you meet Jesus, you can't get him out. He loves you too much, and you're not big enough to throw him out of his own house. So don't worry about that. The question being asked here is, were you ever a Christian in the first place? One wrote these uh, words that struck me this week. He who believes in the existence of God, but lives as he was not there, has fallen much further from God than the person who has difficulty believing in God, yet lives in a way that shames Christian believers on a regular basis. The real unbeliever is not the one whose life witnesses to a belief he does not possess, but rather, the, but rather he whose life proves he does not really believe what he thinks he believes. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see whether you are even in the faith. Test yourself. Do you realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? Some of you may have been elders or deacons or small group leaders or Sunday school workers. You may come from generations of Christians or no Christians at all, but you use that title. And God comes to us this morning and says, at this moment, if there is no genuine evidence of transformation, there is a great chance you have never embraced me in the first place. It does not matter how much you know. It does not matter that you've memorized tons of scripture. It does not matter if you're even a member of a church. The question is, does your life evidence the presence of Jesus or does it not? Is God speaking to you? Is God putting divine pressure on you and saying that's you? Don't resist him. Drop your pride and say, come get me. Let my faith now be so real that I am transformed and changed and that life is, that change is seen in my life. Uh, give me a desire to be holy, to serve those I love and those I don't even love. Help me to be marked by Jesus for real who came to serve others, not just myself. I have no time anymore for dead religion. Come give me genuine faith and let that faith be evidenced by works. Is that you? Because if it is, this is a decisive moment in your life. Something more, though. For the many of us who probably do have genuine faith, there's something else we need to acknowledge this morning as we come to an end. Do you notice it? A true Christian community is marked by something. Service. But not just service. Sacrificial service. Please listen closely. Abraham and Rahab risked it all It cost them to obey God. 
To serve genuinely in a church costs time, money, schedules, comfort, and energy. Are you? Are we truly a community marked not just by service, but sacrificial service? The answer is yes, for a minority. Many people here faithfully, sacrificially serve, but many also do not. Many of you that come week after week serve less than four hours a month, an hour a week, and and others just don't serve at all. James comes and says the natural outworking of real faith is service enhanced or expressed by good works, anything done for the living God. There is no room anymore in Crothers Creek Community Church for thoughts like this. Well, I used to serve like that, and I don't need to anymore. I've already done my turn. I just don't have the time to serve, or I don't like the options where to serve. These thoughts will always haunt us and come up when we view this through the lens of duty, the lens of politics, the lens of comfort, the lens of our age or our stage, or even our experience in other churches, or even this one, good and bad. Serving that matters is sacrificial. It costs, but serving is done unto the living God, not unto this place. And when it is given, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Tonight, as we've said, we're starting a new young adult service. And November 15th, we're launching two more morning services for one reason, ladies and gentlemen. One reason, to make more room so people can meet God. Why have so many of you forgotten this? We still, think about this, friends, we still don't even have basic areas covered. I remind you that one of the biggest giants we face in this church is comfort. Heaven and hell, people's destinies are involved in this, not just starting a few new programs. We are attempting to make room so people can meet God. If this is not enough for us to go above and beyond to sacrificially serve, there is a holiness issue in this church. We are talking about our friends and our neighbors and our enemies meeting the God we take for granted. This church, once again, must, as a majority, be marked by not just service that fits into our calendar, but sacrificial service where we say to the Lord, I will do anything it takes to make room. I will do anything, anything, anything to make sure people have an option to meet the salvation that I so love named Jesus. No pastor, and forget the title, I should never have to beg for service. I should never have to beg for you and myself to love Jesus and love others. It should never have to be done from a pulpit. Today in your bulletin, there are tons of things we need done. We need 27 people to step up once a month to serve in the second service so we can launch a half children's program to get ready to launch a full children's program. What is going to happen when the people come? And by the way, for you who are skeptical, God is going to bring them. Have some faith. When God brings them, we need us ready as a church. We need this. So I say to you this morning, ask yourself, God, have I just got in the routine of life? Has the craziness of North American culture so got me that I've forgotten what really matters in the end? James says to some of you, oh, how he wants to meet you today. You think you know him and you never have. He says to a whole group of us, and by the way, no anger here, genuine passion. Oh, come and serve me with faithfulness and see what I will do. But let me end with this. I love the phrase many of you in darkness need to hear. You're still a friend of God. 
God says to us as a community today that we are friends of God. God speaks into some of your realities now and reminds you who have forgotten. He is still your friend and he's never left you. He says to all of us walking, never forget and take for granted my friendship. Many people in this globe and in this world will never ever know me as friend and they will not choose that. But you have friendship with God. God says to us this day as we end, I am your friend. Let this friendship grow deeper than it ever has and see me do things in your family and in this church that you have not imagined. Lord Jesus Christ, half-brother of James, lover of our souls, I ask you, Lord, by your spirit to move at this moment. Meet people that think they've known you and they don't, and I pray that you'd remove fear over them right now. For all of us, Lord, I pray that we would step up and say, Lord, what would you have me do again? What would you have me do so others can meet you for the first time? And lastly, I pray for many, many who are struggling emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and are really in bad places, and they're just wondering where you are. I just, I just ask you, God, to whisper in their heart right now, I'm still your friend, and I'm right beside you in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we come now to respond as a community, we thank you that we can join Christians from every part of the world as we take communion. You said to us, Lord, every time we meet to take bread and, and juice or wine and say, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we remember your death and resurrection. We're reminded you meet us now, and we're reminded you'll meet us again. Lord, I pray you'd bless this communion time in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.